Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The text that we've read is John 8, 32. It's a very short text. Matter of fact, it's probably one that you memorized early if you're a Bible student. The text simply says, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. When I'm studying the historical documents that have to do with Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I am finding, and I'm sure you are too, you're finding that uh, there are a lot of pearls that you can find on these pages of short statements that contain a depth of truth, a depth of information. This text is actually talking about the truth. You shall know the truth. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven was like a treasure that a man finds in a field. And it is. We're looking for treasure as we read about the life of Jesus and his kingdom. We uh, look, look for the things that, that will interest us and that will benefit us and that will help us. And this is the one this morning that I've chosen is the term truth. Now, humanity highly values and idolizes truth. It's, it's high on our list of important issues. Whenever I, I run across a word like this in my personal studies, and you may do the same thing, I try to go back to the original words to see if I can find some meaning and some ontology of the word that will take us on down through the period of time when these words were used that would develop other words for us that help us grasp the meaning. So, I said, okay, what does the word truth mean in Hebrew? It's the word emet. And it means steadfast or firm, reliable. But that really doesn't tell me anything because the word doesn't devolve down into our English language. So I, I get the word and I say, okay, I understand that. And then I go to the Greek word. Sometimes the Greek word really helps. This one that didn't do me much good because it means the same thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't transition down into English. So I said, okay, our English language comes from the Syrian language initially and then down through the Greek and Hebrew, then Greek, and then on down through the Latin and then through some of the Germanic languages and down to us. So now we're looking at the Latin word veritas. And I say, okay. Now that word veritas actually transitions into some other words in the English language. Like the word verity or verdict or even virtue. It is, it is uh, it, it's a good word and it, it does help us to some degree and it, but it carries much the same meaning. Veritas in Roman mythology was the goddess of truth. But again, we're back to the looking for a definition for truth. Well, Veritas doesn't tell me what truth is. It just tells me that she was the goddess of truth in the Roman culture. So how am I going to grasp the meaning of that word truth? And it is, confessedly, 
it is a difficult concept to grasp. It may not seem it. Seems like it's a, it's a very simple statement. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Know the truth. So I said, okay, if I can't figure it out from deriv- the, the derivatives of the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, maybe I can check an encyclopedia or a dictionary and see if I can't get some information from these works. And what I'm struck with immediately is that when I start looking at dictionaries and, and encyclopedias is that they, they turn the attention of this word into philosophy. So now then I'm, I'm looking at the philosophical meaning of the word truth. Philosophical meaning. Seneca said, and he was the tutor for Nero, he said, the truth never goes out, never fails. But he didn't tell us what it was. Now, so I'm looking and I, I, I discover there's a long dissertation that was uh, written by about 79 different scholars, philosophers, from the ancient to the classical to the neoclassical to the modern. And they have told me something about truth. Now let me read from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And this particular dissertation was given or written June the 13th, 2006. And then they made substantive revisions August the 16th, 2018. So it's fairly recent, 2018. So here's, what they, here's how they started out. They said, and it's a number of authors. I, it would be uh, not very productive for me to go through all the authors, 79 of them, but some of them, there's several of them that wrote this material. What they concluded was, they said, truth is one of the central subjects in philosophy. It is also one of the largest. Truth has been a topic of discussion in its own right for thousands of years. Did you know that? People have been trying to figure out what truth is for thousands of years. It would be impossible, they say, to survey all there is to say about truth in any coherent way so that you could understand it. The problem of truth is, in a way, easy to state. Here's the problem. What truths are and what, if anything, makes them true? What is a truth and what makes them true? Then there follows that, this article in all the different citations. But we still haven't come up with a definition. Now, <clears throat> let me, uh, instead of getting involved in sophistry and philosophy, because that, that may, as I started to say a while ago, be counterproductive. If we get into some sort of phil- philosophical definition and discussion, we may cloud our issue of truth. So we'll, I'm going to boil it down in just a minute to three issues. But first of all, let me remind you of why I want to simplify this. And that is because, if you may remember, and the reason basically is that sophistry or philosophy sometimes clouds what we're trying to get to. You may remember that in 1998, 
Bill Clinton, our sitting president at that time, was brought before a grand jury. And the reason he was brought before a grand jury was because it was said that he lied. It wasn't because he was having a, an affair with Monica Lewinsky. That had already been decided. But what he said during the trial with Monica Lewinsky is what this grand jury was considering. And they were considering whether or not he actually said he was or was not having an affair. Now, either Bill Clinton was one of the smartest guys in the world, or he's very lucky because he made a statement that is a philosophical statement and he clouded the issue pretty good. They said, were you or weren't you? And he said, well, it depends upon the, what the meaning of the word is, is. Okay. He got out of it. They were, they were considering him for the fact that he may have broken his oath and lied to a grand jury. So he's saying, when they asked me whether, whether or not I was having an affair, he said, they didn't define what the word is, is. So, he could say, no, he wasn't. Anyway, be that as it may, let's look at a, a, a simple definition, if you will, a description of truth. And, and uh, I, will, I will go through this fairly simply because we, we need to understand truth because the Bible says you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. The basic understanding, even among philosophers, is that truth is based upon facts. You know, going back to the word veritas, the goddess of truth, that word veritas, which simply means truth, appears as a motto on a great number of universities in this country and others in Great Britain and so forth. It's usually imprinted on plaques, veritas, truth. But nobody seems to want to say, here's what it is. So, let's see if we can, for the common man, the common person, understand what truth is. So let's start with facts. And most of the philosophers will eventually get back to what they call to be a, what they say is a fact. Truth is a fact. So let me illustrate that. If we were to say that uh, a lake is a large body of water, that's a fact. It's a fact. It doesn't say anything about the large body of water. It's just a fact. When we go to trial and we sit on a jury or we sit in the, in the spectator's seats or even if we're on trial and someone is being accused of something, our trial lawyers are saying we need the facts. What they're saying is we need to know what actually is true. So, here is a fellow that's accused of being a robber. What's the fact? So they're trying to establish that, whether or not he was a robber. Okay, the same thing is true with something like making a statement like, water is wet. That's a fact, right? Has nothing to do with the integrity of water and so forth and so forth. It's just a fact. Water is wet. Sometimes it gets more complicated than that. Somebody says, snow is white. Well, you say, sure. Snow is white. As long as you define what white is, 
White may not be white. And snow, all snow, may not be white. We don't know, but the point is you can confuse some of these things. But here we are. Most philosophers will eventually get back to the point that truth involves facts. Facts. Now, the second thing that truth involves is reality. Now, the reality of the fact is there independent of independent of acceptance or agreement. It's there whether or not we know about it, whether or not we acknowledge it, it's there. So this guy could be a bank robber and it would be not proven. But the fact established in reality is that he was and he is a bank robber. But maybe we couldn't prove that. But reality of facts exists independent of anything else. They just exist. Water is wet whether we have ever experienced in our life or not. Snow is white, essentially, if we accept the definition of white. Snow is white whether or not we accept that or we have ever seen it or not. You may see where I'm going with this. If I say that God exists, that's a fact. Now, the reality is whether you agree to it or not, or whether you know it or not, the reality is he exists. The problem we have now is that we have to somehow pose that in the form of a proposition. We have to let truth ride or travel on a sentence until we can actually talk about facts and reality. We have to establish the fact, we have to establish the proposition that truth rides on or travels on a sentence like God is in existence. See, there's a sentence. Before it was just a fact. It didn't make any difference whether I knew it or not or thought about it or not. And reality is the same thing. But when I finally get the sentence, God is, then I have a proposition and all of a sudden we have involved the issue called faith. Now then I have to either believe that or not believe that. Now then, facts, they exist. Reality, like let's say, the earth, I say the earth is round. And somebody that doesn't believe that says, no, it's not. It's not round. It's not a globe. But the reality is that it is. And the fact is that it is. The reality may be whether or not I agree to that or not. But I've made the statement, and whether or not I believe that or not depends upon my own perspective. Okay. Now let's, let's look at this in terms of, of the sentence that carries the facts and the truth. And most of the philosophers that I have consulted tell us that a sentence is necessary, a statement is necessary for truth to be important to us. It would be, wouldn't it? So let's go. Let's, let's talk about this from the Bible point of view. What I'm going to tell you is that the sentence that we have, the vehicle we have for transmitting thoughts concerning God is called the Bible. That's the Word of God. So as I read my Bible, my Bible tells me that God is. Now that's the sentence and the document I have to tell me that, there's nothing else in this world that will tell me that, is the Bible. 
That tells me that. So the truth is being carried or transported by that sentence found in the Bible. In, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4, the text says, Our God is God of truth. Now there's the statement. And I have the responsibility either for myself to either accept that and believe it or not. Now what if I say, okay, I don't see the reality of it. The, the conclusion is it doesn't make any difference whether you see the reality of it or not. If God is truth and this vehicle tells me it's truth, all I have to do is say I either believe that or I don't believe that. That's the issue of truth. He is the God of truth. Jesus Christ has said in, in uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 to be full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And he said of himself in John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Now, so we have, first of all, we have the facts. God said he's a God of truth. He's truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And the vehicle that transports that information is the word of God. John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them. He's talking to his father. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now we have, therefore, the, the uh, ability to understand the facts and to demonstrate whether the reality of that is true to our satisfaction or not. In Galatians 2 at verse 5, it's called the truth of the gospel. Paul said, I, I'm praying so that the truth of the gospel will continue with you. Ephesians 1.13, so now he's narrowing it down to some degree. He's saying, in whom you also trusted, you trusted. Why? Because you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we heard the word, the word of God in the gospel, and we trusted God. Now that's the issue, isn't it? The facts, the reality, and the expression. We heard the word. Colossians 1.5 says, The hope that is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel. James 1.18, it says, Of his own will he begot us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay. Now, that, that brings us to how we test this. How do we know what is true? How do we test it? So we have, we have the statement made, the facts. And the facts are that God exists. The fact that the reality is that He exists. And sentence is the Bible tells us that He exists. So there should be some way that I can, I can test that premise and decide whether or not that is true. Isn't that right? How can I figure out whether that's true? So now I want to use another illustration. And I hope I don't uh, miss it. Whether you can see this or not, this is, a, this is a piece of quartz that has gold in it. It has gold. Now then, the fact of gold, it, we, we know that gold exists, right? And we know that it can be found in, the, in quartz. We know that. So gold is the fact. Now then, let's, let's see if we, if we can figure out something about it so that we can place some confidence 
in whether or not we know something is gold. Okay? That's not just the fact that this is gold. It's the fact that it's a reality that it's gold. And it's the fact that I'm told that it's gold. So now then I need to find out whether or not it is gold. Okay? How do I find that out? Well, I do know, first of all, that gold is a valuable and desirable commodity in our society and in ancient cultures. It always has been. Highly prized, highly valuable. And the reason for this, there are multiple reasons for this, but the reasons that I have listed is this. Gold will not corrode or rust. You can't, you can't rust gold. You, can't, you leave it in water for centuries and it won't rust. And it won't corrode. It's highly conductive as a material. And it's, it's used in electronics. That is, it's highly electrically conductive. And that's why they use it in circuit boards. Because it doesn't attract moisture. And it doesn't rust and corrode. It just continues to transmit electricity. And it's resistant for, to deterioration. It just doesn't... It doesn't uh, go away. And it's beautiful. Gold is beautiful. Did you know that, uh, and I, of course, we, we have the uh, production of gold. And uh, we, we do know that, that uh, China produces more gold than anybody else in the other country. About 400 metric tons of gold a year. The United States is behind them between 200 and 250 metric tons of gold. We know then that, uh, that gold is good and it's desirable and we want it. But did you know that 75% of use of gold is for decorative purposes? Jewelry. Trinkets. Gold plating. You can, you can take a, um, an inch of gold, an ounce of gold, not an inch, an ounce of gold, and you can plate it. You can plate 200 square inches with that ad ounce. So it's, it's highly malleable. Excellent for plating. Tombs were overlaid with gold and they still remain there. King Tut's tomb, of course, is evidence of this. Now, how do, how do I identify gold? Okay, I, I see all the, all the good things that, that is there and all the things that gold can do. So how do I identify it? Well, uh, first of all, I can say I, I can I can test it with the with the specific gravity test. That is how much water it displaces. It's nineteen point three is the is the uh, volume that is uh, given for specific gravity. That that's the number for gold. So if I want to know if this is really gold, I give it a specific gravity test, pure gold. Then I want to know how hard is it. Have you you've seen some of the old pictures of people taking a gold coin and putting in their teeth and twisting it? Well, that real, they really had, did that. Gold has, according to Moles, M-O-H-S, Mole, apostrophe S, he developed a hardness scale, and it's rated at 2.5. As hard as your fingernail. That's how hard pure gold is. So you, it's malleable. You can bend it around. And it's easily scratched. You can scratch it very easily. 
And generally, gold has rounded edges, not sharp pointed edges. And it is non-magnetic. If you're concerned about buying something from someone that they claim is gold, take with you a strong magnet because gold will not be attracted to a magnet. And if you rub gold, if you have a ring that you think is gold, or a chain around your neck, or a trinket or whatever, if you rub it on a touchstone, then you can take the mark that it leaves, it will come off. If you use some nitric acid or hydrochloric acid, that will remove it. So there's some tests that tell you what gold is or is not. And, uh, it, of course, we have different carats of gold, 18, 24. 24 karat gold is the best, or is the purest. But you can add an alloy to it and make it stronger, which is generally what happens when you, when you put it in a ring or a bracelet or a necklace or an anklet or whatever it may be. Now, I have ways that I can identify gold. Somebody says, this is gold. Okay, now let me see. I'm going to weigh it, specific gravity. If it passes that test, okay, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to see how hard it is. I'm going to see if I can put it on a touchstone and take it off with nitric acid or hydrochloric acid. So all these tests will tell me whether or not this is gold. If this product that I have in my hand is what we know as gold, then it should pass all these tests. Correct? Well... Now, can you see the difference in those two rocks? Let's see if I can go back. Yeah, that's gold. That's not gold. That's iron pyrite. But it looks like gold, doesn't it? It's called, it's got another name. Now, there was a, there was a, um, a movie I, was, I did not go to the movie when it came out, but I saw the movie later. And I really enjoy it, and sometimes it comes on, and I, I watch it again. It's called The Treasure of Sierra Madre. It was made in 1948. It was made in Durango, the state of Durango, Mexico, near Tampico. And in, it, it starred Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt, and Walt, Walter Houston, these three actors. The situation was that, that uh, Tim Holt and Humphrey Bogart were in Tampico. And this old gold miner, uh, Walter Houston played the gold miner, was an old prospector. So he convinced these two younger guys to go with him gold prospecting if they would put up the grub stake that they needed to go do the prospecting. So they did. And they went out, they started out, and they brought. They had a couple of mules carrying all their equipment, gold pans, picks, shoveled, everything they'd need, food and so forth, going up into the mountains. And they traveled a couple of days, and then they stopped one time, and I don't remember whether it was Humphrey Bogart or Tim Holt, but one of them found a rock that looked like that. He held it up, and he all of a sudden, he said... We found it. And so we got some water and poured on it. And it was brilliant. Of course, gold is brilliant. You know, and it shines yellow. Okay, he, saw, he said, this is gold. And so he and he, the, the partners, Tim Holt and, and Humphrey Bogart, began to dance around. 
we were rich. We, we struck it rich. And old Walter Houston, the old prospector, just looked at them and laughed. He said, do you know what you have? What? He said, fool's gold. You have fool's gold. Iron pyrite. Well, iron pyrite will not pass all those tests for gold. Iron pyrite is not pretending to be gold, but iron pyrite is simply not gold. It doesn't pass the test. It does not, it does not have the same consistencies of, of gold and does not have the same properties. So it's not gold. Now we can conclude that gold is a fact from that chart we had a while ago. Gold is a fact. Gold is a reality. Whether or not you've ever seen gold in your life, gold exists. It's a reality. But for me to tell you that something is gold, if I hand you some iron pyrite and said, this is gold, then you need to be making some tests. Is this gold or isn't this gold? Well, obviously, you're going to say, if, if it's iron pyrite, it won't pass the test. Okay, I, I know I've, I've gone way around this issue, but I, I'm going to get back to it now. We're talking about Bible things. We're talking about what this book tells us in the sentence. That's the sentence. Here's what this book tells us. And the first thing I want to tell you is, the thing that really struck me, is that in this book, it's a, it's a historical record, it's, it's for our benefit, and it's true and it's accurate. And it's the only book we have that tells us about God. You, we need to understand that. And gives us the reality and the information we need. But here's a statement that God made to Moses in this historical record. And here's what God said to Moses. Moses said when he was going to go down into Egypt and get the children of Israel to come out. He said, who can I tell you? Tell them, sent me. I need to tell them that somebody sent me. And God said, I am that I am. A fact. I am that I am. He did not say, I am God. He said, I am. So, He is a fact. Whether the reality of that ever sinks into our mind or not, God exists. And that's what He said to Moses. I am now the same thing was the same statement Jesus made in John 8 at verse 58. When uh, they questioned him about his identity, that is the priest and the Pharisees and so forth, they wanted to know who he was. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. A fact. We don't need a sentence to tell us that. It's just a fact. And that, my friend, that impresses me. Because this book that tells me about God, that tells me about my Savior, tells me that these two, the Father and the Son, both stated a fact. And that fact is truth. I am that I am. And Jesus said the same thing. When Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus when he was standing in front of him, and being accused, he said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And you know what Jesus said? I am. Fact. Fact. I am. Now, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said he was in the beginning with the Father, and without him was nothing made that was made. He is the creator as well. So now, when we get down to the sentence, the sentence is, in this book, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what this book tells us. This book tells us that the God of heaven is the God we read about because that sentence is, those words tell us, and carry that meaning to us, and no other book does this, just this one. This is the only book that does it. But what we have to do, if, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe the sentence, if we don't believe the information, then we have to set about and show that this book is not historically accurate. That it does not contain the truth. That's what we have to do. Because this book is telling me that God is. And it's telling me that Jesus is. It's the sentence that expresses that fact. Now let's, let me read it for you in a, in a different form. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, where Paul is talking about his preaching of Jesus and the words that he was using to define Jesus, he says in verse 10, God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him, even so, the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual words, basically. So the Bible, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, conveys the truth to us about the Father and about the Son, the facts, tells us the facts. Now you say, well, maybe I don't believe that. You know what I'll say? Who cares? Because it's a reality. So I can say to you, I don't believe the earth is round. And the answer is, the reply is, who cares? The reality is that it is round. I can say, I don't believe the snow is white. The reality is, it is. I don't believe that this guy's a bank robber. Well, then maybe they didn't prove it. But the reality is that he was a bank robber. You see the point? Okay, I'm, what I'm going to do... Now, I've gone a little ways along this line. The, the reason why we have such great respect for this book as believers is that we know that it is the vehicle that transmits the knowledge we need and makes the proposition that we need to hear that produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if this book is laid aside, I have no access to the truth. I have no access to the facts. I have no access to the reality. If I don't have this book, if I don't have this vehicle that transports truth for me, I have no way of believing in God. No way of believing in Jesus. Now, Jesus used this illustration one time in Matthew chapter 12 when he was being accused of casting out demons by the prince of the demons. And uh, he, said, he said Satan was not divided against himself. If Satan would be divided against himself, his kingdom would fall. But then he went ahead to say that you can blaspheme the Son but you cannot blaspheme 
the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the Word. When you dismiss what the Holy Spirit did, which was, you know, I read it in 1 Corinthians 2. When you dismiss what the Holy Spirit did, you dismiss any possibility of getting to the facts. You can't even know whether or not Jesus is the Christ. You can't even know anything about God. There is no way you can know anything about God without this product, the Word of God. That's why men and women have given their lives over the centuries to make sure that we have an accurate copy of this book. It's highly reverenced. Why? Because it transmits that information. Truth. It transmits it. And the information is what, uh, what, we, what we need to have in our understanding of God. We constantly examine this word to make sure that these claims are right. You know, when Jesus came, he talked to Pilate. And the, what I say when he came, when he, when he came before the, his uh, accusers, uh, Cephas accused him and, and, uh, and tried to question him and, and tried to break him down. Then he was, he was sent to Pilate, and Pilate wanted to say some things to him. And so he asked him who he was. Was he a king? And so Jesus said the, the thing that I want to mention in John chapter 18, verse 31, 32. Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. What is the truth? And then Pilate said, like most philosophers, what is it? What is the truth? He couldn't figure out what it was. What is truth? fact, that fact is a reality, and somebody told me what about it, what it was. Somebody transmitted that information to me, and that gives me the opportunity whether or not I'll believe it or not believe it, reject it. Now, why did I bring the business of gold up? Because there has to be some way that we can examine the, the claims in the Bible to our satisfaction that we can believe what we read in the scriptures, and we can believe things about God. Who is he? Let me, let me give you one premise about God that we can examine. Now, when Jesus was on this earth, there were individuals who said, we don't believe who you are. So, show us a sign. Show us a sign. You know what Jesus said? He said, the only sign I'm going to give you, in Matthew chapter 12, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Even so, the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, my proof is the resurrection. I rose again on the third day. Now someone said, well, I'm not sure I believe in the creation. Okay, now how can we prove that fact? Well, okay, do it again. Make another one. That's really what people want. Make another one. If you did it the first time, do it again. If you really are God, come down from the cross. That was an accusation they made to Jesus. Do it again. Well, you know that's not going to happen. How can I believe that God is 
How can I believe that God is? Well, the reason I used the illustration of gold was because our gold in the Scriptures is called love. L-O-V-E. 1 John 4 and verse 8 says, God is love. Now then, God is the pure, genuine fact. He is love. How can, I, how can I demonstrate that? Well, I can say, okay, God is love. What is love? So I look at the cross of Calvary and I say, well, I think I can see some of it. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And when Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 22, and I think it's about verse 29, He was asked, what's the, what's the first commandment in the law? He said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. In Ephesians chapter 3, at verse 19, the text says, verse 18, let's start at verse 18, you may be able to comprehend, well, verse 17, actually, I'll go on back. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. God is love. And we can be filled with the presence of Jesus Christ and His Father in us. And they, that love will be expressed in our lives. How can I know what God is? Who God is? From the Scriptures. How can I know the love of God? The Scriptures tell me that God is love. The Scriptures tell me that He is a, the greatest benefit, benefactor of this world that we've ever seen. So, I, I want to demonstrate that. Just like with gold, I want to demonstrate the properties of that. So I look at the individuals in whom God dwells. And Christ dwells in your heart by faith. And He is God. So I want to know, can I see love, the love of God, in that individual? Is the, are the properties there? You know, there's a definition given of love in the New Testament, which is pretty pretty uh, popular in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, it, it takes us through several different terms that talk about love. And those terms are something like this. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not vault itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not its own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. My friend, you know, just like I know, that when God is on the premises in His Son, Jesus Christ, that love prevails. It does. We've been, go we've been going through a period of time when there's been a great deal of animosity among peoples. And that animosity has come because we don't think we've been treating each other properly. 
And so we're being told that the way to, way to correct this is to make some laws. Make sure that, that we make a law that says, here's how we want everybody to be treated equally. So we're going back to the Constitution. We found out that the Constitution really doesn't discuss that. But then someone says, well, it's only right that you treat people properly. And that's what the Bible says. God is no respecter of persons. But in order for me to change and to exhibit love, I do not do it because I've been forced to, but I do it because the love of Christ compels me to. Why would I treat you nice? Why would you, why would you treat me nice? Because if I don't, I'll lose my job. Because if I don't, I'll be arrested. Because if I don't, I'll be called a racist. No. Matter of fact, this is what I've seen in this whole mess that we've been going through, and that is that, that individuals have been appealing to a source that isn't really there. The, the source we need to appeal to is God. God and God is love, and whenever Jesus is present, He compels us to behave properly. And I, when there's problems on this earth, the ones who stand up and help solve the problems are believers. Those in who Jesus Christ dwells. If people treat each other nicely, if people, people look out and see uh, that somebody is suffering and they want to reach down and help them, it's not because they've been compelled to. It's because Jesus is present in their lives. What I'm saying is that you can see, you can actually see the love of God in the hearts of individuals and the way they behave with one another in this life. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Bible says. So we're looking at the we're looking at the the test. How do I know that God is here in Jesus and in your life, my life, in the neighborhood? Because the impact that they have in the definition of love on our society. That's how I know. I wouldn't know any other way. That that is the litmus test that we take to make sure that we know that Christ is present. God is a gracious God. He is a good God. He forgives our sins. He takes them away because He loves us. Why would He? Why would He forgive you for something you've done? You say, well, that's no big deal. That He forgave me of my sins. Well, the forgiveness of your sins is the basis for you changing your life and being a nicer person. That's the forgiveness of sins. So, when Jesus healed a guy that was let down through the roof, you remember that incident? A fellow came down through the roof in Luke chapter 5, and when he got there, he was lame, and Jesus, Jesus said to son, he said, your sins are forgiven you. How powerful is that? Your sins are forgiven you. You better think about this for a minute. He said that you may know that I have the power on earth to forgive sins. He told the man, get up and walk. You cannot forgive your own sins. It cannot be done. You say, well, you need to get over this. You need to forgive yourself of what you did. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says what man can cleanse his own heart or forgive his own sins. 
Proverbs 20, verse 9. Man can't forgive sins. God will forgive your sins. All you have to do is come before God and say, I want, I want to serve you. I want to be washed from our sins, and I want to be forgiven. He's the one that forgives our sins. If we think we can forgive our own sins, we're on a slippery slope. We're going downhill fast. Because you know what I'll do? I'll make an excuse. I'll say, I did this because. And once I make that rationalization, I can do that with anything I do. I'm not as bad as this guy. I'm, I'm better than that guy. I, I did it because I was aggravated and somebody pushed me into it. So all of a sudden, I'm making all my rationalizations. The point is, I can't forgive my sins. They're still there. And they're still going to damage my heart. And always will until I allow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to forgive my sins. He needs to wash me in His blood. I need to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Rise again and walk in the of life. I need to partake of His resurrection in my life. And then the love of God comes into my life. And all of a sudden, He empowers me through love. And now I can experience it. How do I know there is a God? Because of what He's doing in my life and in your life and in the life of society all around. Because love is wherever God is and wherever Jesus is. That wasn't always so. It wasn't always so. Paul was preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he found an idol there by Areopagus, the Mars Hill, what we call the Mars Hill. And he looked at it and he said, boy, he said, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of gods here. And he said, I found one of these to the unknown God. And he said, this, this is what I'm going to tell you about. And then he said, God who at sundry time, God in the past winked at, the, at this past, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So all men have a responsibility now to repent. And that's when the love of God can come into our lives. And the Bible says that the love of God is the keeping of, of God's commandments. So, God says, okay, Bill, I want you to take care of this poor individual that doesn't have anything. You know what does that? Not me. What promotes me and provokes me is God. God is love. So I know then that the keeping of His commandments is love. What He tells me to do is an expression of love. Jesus and His presence in society is love. And He forgives and He heals and He raises us up to be better people than we are without Him. That's the gold standard. That's the gold standard of Jesus. Well, He said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And then he said, my Father's truth and I am truth. We need to get to know Jesus and get to know his Father and we'll be free.